Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new Martin Scorsese picture, The Irishman, a Netflix-released film, but also in some theaters. But we didn't see it there, because we're coming up on the holidays, so we just watched it at home, and that's probably the place you should see it, too. Uh, we were going to talk about The Report, the new Adam Driver film on Amazon Prime. We're pushing that to next week, because we didn't know The Irishman is three and a half fat hours, so that was a problem for us. <laughs> uh, mostly me, actually. Andy stayed on it, but uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the review uh, we're not going to have a Death of Cinema segment this week either. We're just doing the review. Uh, it's going to be a quick one. Like I said, the holidays are getting dicey, and we'll talk about our scheduling at the end of the show. But before we get to all of that, we need to talk about the news that's still here. And our first story, Studio Ghibli Films to be available for digital purchase for the very first time. The entire 21-film catalog of G-Kids animated films from the famed Japanese studio will be available on December 17th, ahead of their availability, my god, to stream (laughs) on HBO Max in 2020 in May. Andy, are you a Studio Ghibli fan? I am. I'm a huge fan. I am also a huge fan. What do you think of this news? Um, It's exciting because uh, one of the big complaints of streaming is there's certain properties that you just can't get to because they're not on any service. Um, And one of those is, of course, Studio Ghibli Films. And this includes even digital purchases. So they've only been able to purchase these movies in hard copy DVD Blu-ray form. Uh, So... Again, this is just going to be the digital purchases of the film, and then in in May, whenever HBO Max starts its streaming service, um, then they're going to be available on HBO. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I'm more excited about it coming to HBO. I think that'll be just a little bit more accessible to folks than having it available for like video on demand. Uh, in the age of streaming services, it's tough to get somebody to buy a movie online, but... Um, being able to rent it, maybe. I'm not sure whether or not that'll be available here, um, but certainly you'll be able to buy, to buy it on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, all, all the basics. Um, good stuff, man. I have, I have a handful of hard copies of these things. I also have a handful of them on a hard drive somewhere, but that's uh-huh. besides the point. Uh, man, I, these movies are real cool. And for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, if, if you're not familiar with Studio Ghibli films, um, do some Googling. I, I, you're about to uncover Spirited a Spirited away. Really cool films, yeah. Uh, you got a favorite in there, Andy? I'm curious. Um, probably uh, Princess Mononoke. Yes, the most adult of all of them. Uh, nature versus man. It's a good movie. Uh, that was mine for a long time. It's probably back around to suit to to spirit it away, but like it changes like the wind, man. I I, I have an affinity yeah. for so many of them. <laughs> I mean, I rented that on VHS. Yeah. That's oh how, God. Okay. That's how yeah. Long ago I Take saw that, that and rewind it back. Uh, we had a DVD that a friend stole because <laughs> that was how that's how we rolled on the streets back in the day <laughs> in 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 Houston, Texas. Uh, yeah, my neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa, Ponyo. There's a ton of these movies. Most of them I know are, are Hayao Miyazaki films, but there's other ones in there. Uh, that are worth checking out studio ghibli films coming to hbo will also be available for purchase definitely worth mentioning and and one more thing before we move on to this what like why why do you think they haven't done this before because i've got a theory as to why they've they've been kind of iffy about this i'm curious if you've got one uh i don't really i mean i i feel that it's i mean a they're very protective of their property and b i'm sure it's a money issue as well they've the price just hasn't been right yeah, I, I think that's true. I know getting them over here, the studio started in 85, and getting them over here was a hassle. That was actually John Lasseter from Pixar and Disney uh, who really picked up the reins on that and said, hey, we want to adapt these and translate them and dub them and put them in American uh, put them in American audiences' uh, hands. And, and there was some tough time getting that done, but eventually they did it. It's a little weird now that it's coming to HBO when Disney did the trouble to... to translate all these things and release them here and distribute them. But uh, ultimately, you know, probably a good thing. This little Japanese studio needs to get, get, get with the times. It's, it's high time <laughs> we're getting these things digitally. And speaking of getting with the times, uh, Marvel releases the first trailer for Black Widow starring Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, you found this today, Andy, and sent it to me. I hadn't watched it before you sent it over. Uh, please uh, fill us in. So yes, Marvel is as after um, Spider-Man: Far From Home is take took a very long break, and we're finally going to get an, our first Marvel movie in what is I guess officially Phase Four, and it's going to be the Black Widow movie 
uh, that which will come out in May of 2020. Uh, so just five, five, six months away. Uh, so what we see in this trailer, we, we see Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow, uh, having to go back home, back to her roots to, uh, you know, back where it all started. We hear in the trailer to, uh, you know, make something right. Uh, in the past, and we, we meet some, some new characters. We see Florence Pugh, who plays her sister, who's also an assassin. And then we also see some colorful new characters in Rachel Weiss and David Harbour from Stranger Things playing some sort of Russian superhero. Um, reminds me of a, of a DC character called KG Beast. Uh, which is a, which KG is a, Beast? Which is a great name, but oh no, that, that's not him. Um, but it, it's another action movie, and we have uh, a new set of characters, and we're going to get some backstory into uh, Black Widow. It looks re- really cool. It, you know, it, it's got the classic Marvel action. Re- looks really good. It's got good characters. Um, I'm excited for it. And what, what I think is really interesting is compare this to... Uh, the Charlie's Angels reboot, which just bombed recently, and Elizabeth Banks had some kind of negative things to say about why. Um, but this is a different kind. This is a modern kind of action film, female-led action film, and I think that was a big problem with Charlie's Angels is Charlie's Angels still looked like it was 15 years past its prime. Yeah, I am tentatively ex- – I don't even want to say I'm excited about this. I'm not that excited about this movie. I wish I was. I, I, I don't know why I'm not more into it. Um, first off, to, before we get into my opinions on it, the teaser is is just over two minutes long, and I'm real split on how I feel about Disney dumping out teasers that are over two minutes, because it's like a trailer. But on the other hand, man, that hype train's rolling. Like, people who are excited about this movie are excited about this movie, you know? Uh, no, the new Bond movie, No Time to Die, put out a, t- a teaser uh, this week as well, and it's 15 seconds. It's like nothing. You don't even see anything. That's it really com- a teaser for the teaser, though. Right? Yeah. Like it comes so fast. This is like okay. Like I'm getting. We're getting some goods here, and and you know it's got a this summer slate in there in May 2020. <laughs> so, uh, what what do you, what do you think of this movie? Because we're revisiting a character who uh, after Endgame. It's not really relevant in the current Marvel timeline, I guess. Uh, this is probably happening before that film. I think that's probably safe to say. Yeah, the, it's definitely some sort of prequel. And, you know, Marvel was smart to do this five-year period uh, in Endgame where kind of we're not sure what happens because that, that gives you plenty of room to have the characters that did survive the snap. Um, gives them plenty of of room to have their own movies and do solo spinoffs. I'm sure Captain Marvel is going to have her own trilogy and it's all going to take place before uh end game uh so it, it was a smart move on on their part i'm excited about it i like how how it looks and i'm excited for marvel to be back on the calendar yeah i i am too i i'm i guess i'm not super excited because i i i wonder why we should care you know we ca- we kind of know the terminus of this character um the other characters that are in there are interesting but ultimately probably not relevant because they don't appear in any of the other films so it's like this just feels like this one-off by itself thing that ultimately can't have really a larger impact kind of like star wars rogue one like you kind of know where it's going you know so like mm-hmm. how can you what kind of story can you tell in there but you're right uh they've got it they've got a period of time that's kind of shrouded in shadow we don't know what what happened in that five-year span between the snap if that's where this is going on i like the new the new cast florence Pugh, david harbour and rachel vice i'm a big fan of you saw when you sent this to me in slack i was like oh my god rachel vice what are you <laughs> you were nominated for an oscar <laughs> she's, a, she's some in like her but... she's in she's like in her 50s i'm really yes. impressed she's in a uh, an action movie yes it's great. yeah but the other guy in there very quickly pointed out that she was also in fred claus but uh <laughs> She, she was in. My, I mean, she what? was in the Mummy. I mean, <laughs> it's true. She was also in my two and three uh, favorite films of, of 2018 uh, last year. And hey, the Mummy is a rock solid action film. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll die on that hill. She uh, she is so tan in that movie. Like, you can't even tell absurd. it's her. It's absurd. Like she looks like a different person. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it'll be fun. Uh, I'm interested to see another trailer. Uh, hopefully, they kind of get me more excited. I wonder if audiences are going to feel the same way. You know, like ah. Eh, we kind of already saw that character, and like, what's what? What is that going to do? That's new, and I'm not sure if there's really anything. Um, then again, uh, Captain Marvel was kind of a prequel, right? And that worked out fine. Like a bunch of people went and saw that, and and I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, but I'm I'm tentatively tentatively excited. I suppose. I mean, Marvel's I th- I think Widow. at this point, the Marvel brand has 
is so powerful and also that we've been marvel starved for over a year now or not quite a year um i i I mean i think the fans are gonna get behind it and again we haven't had a female this is gonna gonna only be the second female-led marvel film since captain marvel uh so they're in a lot of ways they're way behind the time so it's nice to see that see this film finally happen Mm -hmm. i agree Speaking of movies I'm not super excited about, oh my god, I saw this headline before we started and shouted an exclamation, uh, new Planet of the Apes movie in the works with Maze Runner filmmaker Wes Ball. Andy, how are they still making these movies? Who is still going to see CGI apes? I, like, en- I enjoyed the Apes trilogy, the newer stop. Apes trilogy. Did you really? Yes. It's oh, my a- God. Apes th- together strong. I mean, <laughs> I, thought, I thought they were terrible from the very beginning. I thought the first one was kind of cool, and, and ever since, I was just like, these are all bad. They they, they feature uh, Woody Harrelson and America's cuck Jason Isaacs. <laughs> <laughs> Not Jason, Jason this, Clark. <laughs> Jason Clark. Oh, you're right, Jason Clark. Oh, excuse me, Jason Isaacs. Uh, yeah, I, I think the CGI in these movies is great. I, I think uh, Andy Serkis is great. I do think they've done something interesting with the setting and the world, but oh my god. Uh, wh- what, do you, what do you know about this story? Okay, so this is pretty interesting. Uh, this uh, Planet of the Apes belonged to 21st Century Fox, which as we know was bought by Disney. So Disney now owns this property and they have it before. So this is the first film or kind of one of the first big properties that that is going to get the Disney treatment post-purchase so we don't know if that means an entire new reboot or if they're going to somehow continue the story that was started um kind of both options but this is this isn't just like a, a reboot of a studio that was already successful this is you know completely new ownership by Disney um and also like technology has come a long way because that was a big thing of the of the new apes films was the incredible motion capture uh technology and use by andy circus so like i said it's really interesting because it's under the disney umbrella and we don't really know where it's going to go but it has been a very profitable franchise and so we're going to see more of these you know something i did notice in here uh <laughs> andy circus doesn't seem to be attached to this which is weird because he was kind of the headliner for those for the, for those previous films. I mean, not only was he acting as the main character, but he was very much leading effects and like directing performances. Like that's that, that was really a playground for him to kind of develop his his craft as uh, the lead eight, but also you know kind of a CGI motion capture expert. And he doesn't seem to be attached to this, not according to this uh, article anyway, out of Hollywood Reporter. What is interesting is. Uh, our our director, Wes Ball, from the Maze Runner series, was working on The Mouse Guard, uh, which was a project Disney had going from him based on a comic book series from Boom Comics. Andy Serkis was also linked to that. So both of them were linked to the same project, which seems like this is, has been shelved by Disney. And now this guy's working on a new Planet of the Apes, and we don't know what Andy Serkis is up to. Maybe he's involved. Maybe they just haven't really announced anything yet. Uh, but it is strange that they both had their names attached to a different project. Uh, and now, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously skeptical about Planet of the Apes. You've seen, you've I seen can't believe all it, of them. I can't you've, believe you're not a fan. Yeah, I, I've, no, I've, really, I've really enjoyed them. I can't them. <laughs> believe you are a fan. Lowbrow <laughs> cinema. How dare you? Oh, uh, it's got... On this show, no, apes I, together I, strong. <laughs> I really need to. I, I should probably sit down and actually spend the time to really get into them. I've I've rolled my eyes at them ever since I saw the last one. Uh, it, I think it's I think it's the premise. How how in God's name can Terminator not make it in the world with a time traveling Arnold Schwarzenegger robot series evading apocalypse, but a bunch of apes. Running around on sticks so, can take so, okay. over America. Like okay, I, so, I, it's astounding so to me. Here's a question: Did you see the third one, which was War of the Planet of the Apes? No. Okay, so that one is actually much more. Met- Despite being called War for the Planet of the Apes, there's like. Z- very little fighting. There's very little battles. Like it, it's another, almo- another disappointment. Well, it's <laughs> almost it's almost misleading, but it actually turns into like this really serious character drama <laughs> about, right. about like it. It goes in a different direction, and I think I think it was is really well done, and it's a good like three. You know, in in a in a time when everything is a universe, it was nice to get just a three film arc 
uh, open and shut. I, I was a big fan. I really enjoyed them. Audiences also really enjoyed them. So. Yes, I, I am definitely in the in the minority here. It is very clear by box office numbers. Those were worth it. Disney would not be chasing this if it wasn't worth revisiting. Uh, I'm interested to see if they continue with where it left off or just kind of go in a new direction. I would hope new direction. I, I think you're right. Like, I think people were pretty pleased with kind of the three part roundabout of those films. Um, I don't know yeah, if opening up again or, or I don't even know where it left off. Honestly, I, I'm not even sure if you can pick up the pieces. Yeah, I mean, you you could, but I think you just have so much more freedom if you just start new new setting timeline. You know, you it could be like the original, go back to you know, put it put it way in the future or you know something much different. But you can you can do a lot of new things, and you know, I don't know how much serious Disney is about it, but you know, if they want to start selling toys or building theme parks, if there's a Planet of the Apes theme parks. Uh, you know that, and that may not be in the works for for this kind of this franchise, but mm-hmm. it's a it's always a possibility. I'd say it's intriguing that uh, we have a young adult film director coming to the helm here, but it's pretty much irrelevant when it comes to directing movies nowadays. I feel like often an indie director will get picked up for you know a huge series. Oh, oh, you 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 made a movie that was my, my relatively successful at festivals. Here, take the new Jurassic World. You know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. How do you feel about directing a Star War? So, uh, I, I I think I don't know. New Planet of the Apes, more to come. I guess I should probably stop being so skeptical and try something new for a change. Maybe that would broaden my horizons. And speaking of broadening horizons, we should get to our first and only film of this episode. Might be a short one this week, folks. So stay tuned. The movie is The Irishman. It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened. So The Irishman is the story of Frank the Irishman Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro, a man with a lot on his mind. Uh, He's a former labor union official and maybe hitman, but definitely a house painter in some sense of the term, uh, who learned to kill uh, in Italy during the Second World War. He's from Philadelphia, and when he returns, of course, and is finding work as a delivery driver, he inevitably gets tangled up with maybe the wrong kind of crowd and, and stumbles backwards into this lavish lifestyle of Italian gangster hitman that Martin Scorsese has really cut his teeth on over the course of his career. And naturally, over the course of this film, as uh, the story unfolds and we're, we're introduced to characters like Jimmy Hoffa himself, Al Pacino, we find that maybe not all that glitters is gold, and uh, perhaps at the end of a long road as a crime boss mobster-ish kind of guy, uh, maybe it's not all worth it. Um, it's a formula Martin Scorsese has used a lot, right? Uh, uh, we saw it in Goodfellas, we saw it in other... Mob films I can't immediately think of. Andy, please help me out here. You got any references? Um, yeah, I mean, Mean, mean Streets, uh, yep. one of one of his earlier works, also evokes things like uh, obviously The Godfather and uh, Scarface. Yes, uh, this this model of of mobsters looking back on their life and going, hmm, you know, what did I what did I learn? Here's my story. What do you think? Uh, it's it's kind of a timeless tale. It's almost like the old western. And, and Scorsese returns to the genre uh, with his heavy hitters. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino all feature prominently in this film. Uh, the film is set over the course of about 50 years and features prominent de-aging technology, which, you know, your mileage may vary on what you think of that, but we're going to talk about it. It is certainly a tale at three and a half hours. It is a long movie, an yes, epic of sorts. Yes, uh, which was a real challenge for me. We should jump into this movie because there's a lot to talk about. I'm yeah. not sure if we could take a whole episode <laughs> worth to get through it, but we could certainly try. Andy, uh, what did you think of The Irishman? Um, I thought it was a great movie. It's uh, you know, incredible gangster epic. Uh, epic in terms of, obviously, things like time, but scope and... Uh, the story it's trying to tell, the characters, you know, uh, Scorsese's always been very much a character-driven person. He he wants deep, complex, conflicted characters that, you know, evoke the human's uh, experience. I mean, he's all about that. And and we get that um, in a very different way from, from Goodfellas and a Casino. That's another good example. Um, you know, 
one of the criticisms of something like uh, Goodfellas is that it glamorizes the the gangster lifestyle, which I, I would say it absolutely does. But that was that was a different time in history. Um, that would have been almost thirty years ago when. Yeah, these guys were living the high life and and were just coming off, you know, the good old days and hadn't quite reached where we reach in this movie. Um, but to focus on the Irishman, we have incredible performances. We have this long epic story and it focuses primarily on uh, Robert De Niro and, and his character and his conflict that he has doing what he does because... And it never states this in the movie, but once you kind of get into this life, there's no getting out of it. And... Are, and I think it, early on he probably realizes that that once he does what he does, there's no retiring, there's no doing something else uh, for a living, um, and so that that brings a lot of good things. It also brings a lot of bad things in into his life. Incredible soundtrack, great cinematography, just incredible storytelling. It is difficult to get through though. Three and a half hours is a lot, and it reminded me of again like it's like eating your vegetables at the cinema or, you know, reading Shakespeare or or these difficult classic books. They're great. Sometimes they're difficult to get through. Yeah. I I felt the same way. I actually watched this movie in installments, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to watch it all in one shot, but man, I, between Thanksgiving and everything else, I could not find three and a half hours to sit down. That's an afternoon, man. Like that is a full plate. And, and I, Really wanted to go see it in a theater, but we were down in Houston and just could not find a place, so I ended up watching it this morning. How did I watch it? I watched the first about hour and a half, and then I went to work, and then came back and watched the next two uh, after about a five-hour stint away from the movie, which was not great. That's not the kind of intermission you want to get into, but we can talk about kind of the runtime uh, towards the end of this conversation, I think. For now, let's jump into... Just kind of our, our, our plot, right? I think that's the best place to start. It is long. It is dense. I, I'm i not even sure this movie throws you a time card at the beginning because I couldn't even figure out when it's supposed to start. Um, it's just after World War II. That's like okay. late yeah. 40s, early 50s. Right. It's it's first it's a flashback film, right? We're 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 opening with a very old Frank Sheeran played by our man Robert De Niro, and he's recalling his life. I, I think similar to Goodfellas, I think that kind of did the same thing, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And 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 we we get a flashback to probably about the seventies, which is a road trip featuring himself, uh, Joe Pesci, and and their wives, and then within that flashback. We get There's more, more flashbacks, flashbacks, right, yes. to go further back. It's like Inception. It's it's layers, which is confusing, but definitely helps with kind of the, the the third act of the film when things finally get back on rails and you understand where it's going. But ultimately, we're getting a, a, a 35,000-foot view at Frank Sheeran's life with his wife, his three, soon-to-be four daughters at the beginning of the film, uh, uh, and how he starts to get tangled up with Joe Pesci's character, uh, Russell Buffalino. Buffalino, I'm sorry. Uh, who is tied up with the Italian mob, of course, out of Philadelphia. Uh, definitely some interesting performances. And we don't even get Al Pacino in it till about, oh God, probably about 45 minutes in. Like, yeah, I mean, he, not till act two, basically. Yeah, he's he, he's not prevalent for a little while playing Jimmy Hoffa. That's who that is. To get us started, uh, I think it starts exactly the way most mobster movies start, right? Yeah, our, our main character's doing small jobs, wants a piece of the pie, sees these guys kind of doing bad stuff, but he had been in the army and had done some killing, so he's familiar. He starts to get involved by doing little favors, which grow into bigger favors, and before you know it, you're getting montages of them icing people in the street and throwing handguns over bridges into, <laughs> into rivers. Um, all of that feels good. I think, I think all of that, I'd say the first act feels strong, right? You're engaged, you're interested, like the, you're starting to get the dips of, of the plot and, and kind of the highs of the fun, and, and we see our character kind of start to unspool a little bit uh, in a way that's familiar. So, like I said, similar to watching like an old Western. You know the formula, you know how it goes, but that doesn't hurt it. If anything, it's re- it's it's encouraging because like you're, it's right. like you're getting to know an old friend in a weird way, and that really falls in line with De Niro recall oh, sorry Frank Sheeran recalling his life and like you're really getting to know this person in a way that doesn't feel all that foreign and I thought that was really neat how about you yeah I I really like the just kind of the structure of the plot where it kind of focuses on this road trip and you get flashbacks within that road trip um to different things that happen in it and kind of how they became 
got to where they're at. The heart of this movie is really the relationship between uh, Frank Sheeran and Jimmy Hoffa, Robert De Niro and, and Al Pacino. Uh, together because Robert De Niro very early on kind of becomes uh, Hoffa's driver and slash bodyguard and they you know con- confidant and person that he he kind of goes to who advice and um, that that becomes a very important relationship throughout the whole film and we kind of see it ev- evolve in, into the the third act w- which is really brilliant in in the meantime we also have the relationships between Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci's character, Russell Bufaluno and uh, Harvey Keitel. So he, he has his there. He's working with Jimmy Hoffa, but he still also has ties with the uh, with the mobster guys. And they're all kind of working together, trying to line each other's pockets. But it's as you know, from gangster films, it's a very delicate balance. You know, people get upset over small things. Um, One of the things is they keep they speak in code all the time. They're like, you know, a friend of ours is very concerned. Can you look into this? And it's, you know, that might mean, I, I was like, sometimes I, I wondered, I was like, did anyone ever die because someone misinterpreted <laughs> this very this very vague language that they sure. use? Yeah. <laughs> like, did someone say, oh, you want me to, in the, no, that's not what I meant, but... Um, but it, you know, anyways, the, the story is, is really intriguing and it follows along it. I mean, the history of the U S it reminds me, uh, a lot of the, of the ways it, it does this a little bit in Goodfellas, but the, the, what's happening in U S politics and the U S presidency specifically is, is important. It, it, it happens alongside the elections of, of JFK, his assassination, uh, his brother Robert Kennedy all becoming the attorney general and kind of going after the mob. Like it's a very important part of the of the country's history as well. Yeah. Speaking of that that code, uh, the movie is based on the book I heard you paint houses, uh, a, a work of narrative nonfiction by uh, former homicide prosecutor Charles Brandt. Uh, the, the book chronicles the life of Frank Sheeran, uh, um, very similarly to how the movie does. And the movie actually opens uh, with title cards. Uh, I heard you paint houses, and that's kind of where we really. I, I think that's one of the first lines from Frank Sheeran. I you know I never knew what that meant, but now I do. Um, it also ends with that immediately after the title card, the Irishman, we get a card. I heard you paint houses. And if you Google, I heard you paint houses. The first thing that comes up is this movie. So I, I guess it's an alternate working title. Maybe that's what they wanted to call it from the beginning. I'm not sure, but, uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely that code. I heard you paint houses is mob code for, I, like, I heard you kill people because the paint that's going on the house, the, blo- and the blood splatter is supposed to be blood. Yeah. Uh, worth mentioning. I don't know if that's ever explained in the movie. Is it? I don't think it is. No, I don't I think, think any of the mob code really is. Yeah, you're just supposed to kind of connect the dots, you know. Right. The, well, the one thing that they do explain, you know, they said, you know, when someone said they were concerned, that means they were very concerned. And if they <laughs> said they were very concerned, it means they were very, desperate. very, very concerned. That's yeah, right. pretty desperate. Yes, yeah. Uh, things do start to kind of uh, get, uh, I don't want to say get ugly, but get get a little bit, little bit more visceral for our character, Frank Sheeran. Uh, very quickly, he he kind of agrees to do a deal and then finds out later that that would have been screwing one of the bosses or whatever. So he gets out of it, but the guy who hired him is immediately offed by him. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it, it really kind of rolls from there. Uh, as, as our, as our relationship develops with, uh, uh Russell Bufalino, uh, played by Joe Pesci, uh, we also get a, a kind of Side character in, in Russell's, I think, brother, uh, Wilson Buffalino, played by Ray Romano, who is a lawyer. Uh, yeah, yes. And, and, it is, and, and man, for all, the, for all the joking I do, Ray Romano is surprisingly charming in almost every dramatic role I've seen him in. I don't know why that is, um, but he, he's fine in this movie. You also get a family relationship going on at Russell's home, his wife and his daughters. His daughters are getting older. His wife is getting older. And his daughters, you know, kind of watch their dad and they slowly start to figure out, hey, you're not you're not doing everything like the right way. Like they would they, if they complain about something that happened at the grocery store, their dad will go up and, and beat the hell out of the grocery store clerk. And uh, they feel like they can't go to him with problems because like, what are you going to say? So you get this really distant relationship and him trying to kind of hang on to this family who 
really, he's got no place. And I don't think he ever says, I love you to any of them. I don't think you mm-hmm. ever see, ever see a hug. Uh, yeah, th- there's a really interesting, you know, the, the theme and idea of family is really interesting because there's obviously the, the mob family. And that's where Frank kind of feels at most home and they're loyal to each other. He, like you said, he's distanced from his own family, but there's also this, um, kind of thing where, uh, he is not close with his his young daughter. I can't remember her. Um, Peggy. Uh, Peg, yes. Uh, Peggy Sheeran. Uh, he's not close with her. And uh, there's a scene where uh, Joe Pesci wants to try to, you know, be on good terms with Frank's daughter. And, uh, like, she knows that he's a gangster, too. And, and it just never happens. Like, he, like, he buys her gifts. He, you know tries to say hello be friendly and you know she's she's just not having it and then but interestingly enough the daughter does develop a kind of a friendly fatherly relationship with jimmy hoffa with al pacino's character and it's a very interesting dynamic with who she does connect with as a kind of a father figure and who she doesn't in the film yeah and it it really sets up an interesting kind of other side of the coin for when our, our Al Pacino is introduced, Jimmy Hoffa, who is a no-nonsense uh, head of the Teamster Union uh, character who, it's funny, gets gets a very kind of true-to-life introduction, as, as Frank Sheeran explains via voiceover. Like, everybody remembers Jimmy Hoffa as the guy that disappeared, but nobody knew how big he was in life. And then you get a really, really kind of cool look at him. In, in a lot of ways, this movie could have just been about him, uh, but instead it's about the guy who was kind of with him along the way and protected him. Uh, <laughs> and that's Frank Sheeran's role. He's, he's hired as essentially a bodyguard for, for our Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, Al Pacino's tremendous in this movie and very charming and very fun. And, and he's got a great relationship with Peggy, who uh, who's Frank Sheeran's daughter, who our R- Russell Bufalino played by Joe Pesci does not have. Uh, everybody likes him. Everybody likes Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Uh, but Jimmy Hoffa has some ties to the mob and Jimmy Hoffa donates half a million dollars to Richard Nixon's campaign. And Jimmy Hoffa does not like JFK and, and is doing some strange things with his union money. And he's a really, he's a really intriguing character. Yeah. And I, I feel like we, I mean, I learned a lot of things I didn't know. I mean, I, I had heard that name and I knew he was the head of the team service union, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't know that he went, you know, he did some time. He was found guilty of federal crimes and, and did some time in, in prison. That's a very important kind of uh, part of the film as well. Uh, this movie is all about relationships. It's about the relationships between the families, between the internal families, the mob families, and also just, like many gangster films, it's about the disputes and how they're handled. And you know, the, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is this guy shows up to a meeting. He's wearing shorts. Why is he wearing shorts? What kind of, <laughs> you know? And and if you watch things like uh, like The Sopranos, there's a lot of that too. There's a lot of like how you show respect and show disrespect in, in all these little things, like like showing up late or wearing shorts to to a meeting. That this this kind of thing. And so we get a lot of these these gangster uh, kind of archetypes, uh, but it it tur- it's a very different film. What, what were you gonna say? Oh no, I was I was gonna just kind of jump in from there. Uh, yeah, and 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 once we kind of meet Jimmy Hoffa, like you said at the top, that's where we get into our second act, and that's unfortunately where it feels like things start to sag. It it, it just feels long in there. Um, you know, I, I I was thinking when I was watching this movie of another not gangster related film, but a nonfiction uh, kind of time. Uh, uh, what, what am I trying to say here? Set back in time biopic that we saw recently, Ford v Ferrari. I was thinking of because Ford v Ferrari is two and a half hours, which feels long. But the first act in that movie sets up the cards for you know the, it starts building the house of cards. I should say the second act puts it all together, and the third one it all falls down. In this one, you get your house of cards in the first act. You're like, okay, I see where this is all going. And the second one, it it's just long. Like, and it's good, and, and I'm glad it's there. But like, man, it it, it was a beating. Uh, you mentioned when you saw this one of you, the friend you were watching it with, straight up fell asleep in the, in the second act. <laughs> yeah. I can understand why. Like it. It just feels long. Well, Did you feel it, that way? yeah, it feels long. It feels a little bloated, but also. Um there's a lot of these scenes where there's like three p characters talking and there's you know saying there's a lot of he said she said 
Um, and then the next scene will be three different characters or three similar characters, maybe two f- from the first conversation, one new one, and they do the same thing. And there's a whole lot of that that kind of... You, there's a scene in a big like banquet and everyone's running around talking with everyone else and it kind of gets a little confusing and that's kind of where I started... My eyes started to glaze a little bit because you have all these people that's hard to remember all their names and who they are and why they're important and they're all having these brief conversations about who said what or this or what did he mean or he's not showing respect and that got a little old um and that's probably the only part it really started to drag for me i i love the third act and i, and I like the first act the second is where it feels a little bloated i agree um and i think this is where we can start to kind of look at scorsese's kind of style and presentation here uh obviously scorsese cares a lot about stories like this one and he doesn't phone it in in the irishman if anything this is very much a tribute to what's come before what he's done uh, a swan song of sorts for these for these movies uh and and this movie spares no expense not only in the time but in our cast i'm looking at the imdb list right now and on top of a bunch of names i recognize there are so many actors and actresses I've never heard of playing roles I don't recognize. And, and I, I'm having trouble remembering names because there's so many characters in this movie. It's absurd. Uh, Scorsese does a fantastic job of co- put, putting all of these, or most of these characters in context. Uh, a very charming, <laughs> charming editing trick that I really enjoy in this movie. Often when we see a new character, uh, uh, usually a male, I think. I don't think this happens to any women in the film. They'll show up on screen and then we'll get a freeze frame with simple white aerial text next to their head that says what their name is, how long they lived, and exactly how they died. And every one of them dies in horrible fashion. It's like shot in the face six times in in their car in 1979 or blown up by a car bomb or found in a river. Like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So this is where this this movie really diverts from a lot of the other gangster movies of the 70s, 80s, and 90s where... The, again, those films really glamorize the lifestyle and, you know, everyone else is a, good, is a chump, but I'm going to be the one who survives. Uh, this shows us exactly how few of these guys really lived a long time. Like, they may have enjoyed being a gangster for a while, but um, like you said, most of them met very young, violent deaths. There's one person who died of old age in the that, that's mentioned in, in the film, died of natural causes. Everyone else brutally murdered or you know for one reason or another yep. um sometimes it's explained most of the time it's not and that's what it again it's taking the glamour away from from this genre from what it is and and what i think is brilliant because i was thinking you know why did those films kind of depict that and i, I realized a lot of it had to do with the time uh so the godfather comes out in the 70s well the 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 mob was still very prevalent still very active during those times so they you know the movies like that would have been really accurate and then the 90s are kind of the just slightly post um kind of post heyday of the mob and again but here we get we get to the end we see what it's like to to well many people not survive but then also what it means like to make it to the very end when half your friends have been killed along the way yeah and i i'd never seen that in a movie like this uh and it was actually really charming um it pulls you back out of that flashback for a second. And in fact, it pulls you right out of the movie and it stops you down and says, Oh, by the way, just a reminder, all of this happened and all of these people died horribly. And like, it's really stark and sobering. And so, yeah, in a moment when our characters are in a fancy nightclub or in this cool Italian dinner place, you know, with all these gilded benches and places at tables and waiters carrying silver platters. (laughs) Oh yeah. By the way, none of this adds up to anything good. Like none of none of this is going anywhere positive. So just a reminder. Anyway, back to the film. I actually thought that was really cool. I actually really thought that was neat. Um, I, I thought it was a really cool trick. I, I don't think I've seen Scorsese do that before. Um, something I didn't like uh, in Scorsese's editing, and this is something. <sighs> Scorsese does this thing, right? I, I heard somebody say it in, in a very positive way. He's not that big on continuity. That's what I've heard people say. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you'll see a cut in a Scorsese film in a scene from one side of the room to maybe the other, and our actors will be doing different things. Or they'll look like they're in a different pose. Or they'll... I mean, in in, in, in this movie, he straight up has jump cuts in the middle, in the middle of takes. Uh, or he'll have... A very clumsy, like somebody walk in front of the camera and a cut through, you know, behind the cut, you know, so you can't see it. And our characters are in a different position. It happens 
more than a handful of times this movie, and it's just distracting. And I know I've heard people defend it as, well, he's not so big on continuity as, as he is on context, and that's just his style. And I'm like, sure, but he's been doing this long enough that, like, he should not be stumbling <laughs> into this multiple times. I caught it a couple times in what is probably my favorite Scorsese picture, The Wolf of Wall Street. It happens a couple times, but it's pretty non-noticeable the first time through. This one, like... I, I probably missed a few, but it felt obvious. Um, mm-hmm. There's a scene in particular when Frank Sheeran, uh, in the, towards the towards the end of the second act, when Frank Sheeran picks up the phone to make a tough phone call, and he kind of sits there for a second, holds the phone in his hand, and he picks it up, and then just straight jump cuts to a conversation, like tw- 12 seconds later, but it's obviously a different cut, and it's like, yeah. oh, come on. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, really? Like, it's just, it's just distracting, and, like, that pulls me out of the film in a way that the charming, uh, well, not so charming, uh, death cards don't. Um, did you notice that? Did you did you run into that? I, I noticed a few weird cuts, but it, it didn't really bother me. They they seem stylistic, I guess, to, yeah. to me. And, yeah, and maybe they are. I, I, I get stuck on that kind of thing, though. So regardless of, of how the second act kind of seems to dip, uh, the third act does bring us back around, right? Yeah, Our flashbacks definitely. start to not be so much flashbacks anymore. We're starting to catch up to our character, Frank Sheeran and, and where are all of our other characters are going, of course, uh, in, in, in grim fashion. And that's where it really starts to put a bow on it. And that's where we get to our very, very kind of classic end of the road of a mobster film, right? What does it all mean? What was it all for? I felt like I was living, but was I really dying? What was, what was the point? You know, right. And that's what it, like I said, is very, very different from a lot of, you know, things like the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, for, for sure. Um, Goodfellas Casino, where a lot of those films show the glamour of, of, uh, you know, of the gangster lifestyle, which, uh, which is wrapped up in a lot of the money. And they're like, well, we have all this money, which means we have this house, this car. We, we live like this. We eat the best food. We have the best clothes. Um, this really, this film doesn't do that at all. We see, you know, the exchange of bags of money, envelopes of money. We see a lot of that, but we don't see, there's none of the glamour. There's none of these, well, this, this is the giant mansion. We, it's none of the Scarface stuff where everything's in gold and you live in a huge mansion and, um, you know, and where that film is almost like, well, I lived like a criminal, like, you know, I died young, but look how extravagantly I lived. We really don't get a whole lot of that. And I think he's purposely avoiding glamorizing the lifestyle. Yeah, I, I felt the exact same way over the whole course of this film. Frank Sheeran never breaks out of the middle class. Like, he's never he's never living in a monstrous mansion. Now, professionally, he certainly exceeds uh, at, at what he does and moves through the ranks of his organization, I guess you could say. And maybe in society he does as well, but like... The, the relationship with his with his daughters and his family like never it never really gets any better for for all of for all the hard work he's doing putting people in the ground <laughs> he's yeah. not actually rising to anything and and that that makes it all the more sobering when you get to the end but like you said i don't think scorsese's trying to glamorize that like he's done in the past he's not trying to He's never really doing that like great Copacabana Steadicam shot from Goodfellas in this movie, yeah. where it's like, man, look at look at this descent into this world of li- li- life and luxury. Not really. No, it's just it's just kind of grisly the whole way through, but in a way that's different. In a, in a genre I've seen so many times, <laughs> in a way that's new and engaging and sobering. Um, it, yeah, it's it's almost yeah. it's almost worse to survive to the end. Right. Yeah, and and that I, I'm not sure. It feels in a lot of ways like maybe that's the point. Um, you know, for for our, for our uh, characters that that may make it. Uh, I, I liked it. I, I did. I, I I think I liked that part of it a lot. Uh, I I respected it. It feels a lot like Scorsese making a statement. You know, later in his career, I think it says a lot about not only the actors he's using. I mean, he's pulling together our powerhouse of De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, and Harvey Keitel is in this film as well. I, I didn't mention him, but he's definitely relevant uh and you know scorsese's older just like these guys and uh after i finished watching this on netflix there's a little special it's available i think it's called i was kind (laughs) of i may or may not have been planning on taking a nap right after i watched it so i might have dozed off but uh it's something about like it's like it's like a round table about the irishman and it's de niro scorsese joe pesci and al pacino all sitting around talking about this movie and how movies they made in the past and the book and how they've read it and it's like it's it's really interesting to watch the four of them kind of recall what they've been through and where they've come from and that that energy is is so relevant in this movie like you can feel it you know it's tangible mm-hmm. i i wanted to to talk about just a couple other things uh the soundtrack 
is really great. We just like uh, a lot of his other films, particularly in Goodfellas, we get a really great soundtrack, lots of hits throughout the years, and also just a good original theme, which is uh, played on harmonica of all things, and then yeah. also, also uh, the double bass of all. Mm-hmm. Like that's probably the first time a bass has had a theme in in cinema history. Just about a double bass, and I'm not a music man, but I know you know that means something. And you're right; it's it's engaging. I ended up watching all the credits. Um, just because it kind of kicks into that theme that kind of kind of creeps in. And I, and I didn't notice it when I was watching the movie, probably because I watched it in two parts. But um, watching it at the end, it, it's a really, yeah, it brings a certain harmony to it, you know. Uh, um, it's it just, really charming. It, it, fits, it fits the mood so well. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how he came up with it and that to think that this music is going to fit this film, but it, uh, it absolutely does. It's a really haunting theme. Lots of this slow, the double bass is it's the instrument that's bigger than the cello. Um, so yeah, really low strings. Um, and, and again, juxtaposed with harmonica of, of all things. Interesting choice. Uh, with a cast this big, you obviously have to have a lot of real estate for them to move around on. And this movie is all over the place. We're bouncing around locations, Detroit, Philly, Florida. We're in at one point. Uh, I don't know if we ever make it down to Texas, but there's definitely some talk of it. High rises, uh, little, little houses, laundromats were bouncing around in diners, delis, uh, fancy clubs. Um, man, the, the settings really make this movie feel like it comes alive. And it, it, it because maybe it's because it's so large, but also I think just because Scorsese is so good at what he does. It feels tangible. It feels real. It feels Absolutely. a little bit like a step back in history. Yeah, and our characters as we're as we're introduced to them, and some of them come and some of them go, and you never see them again, but you know what happens to them because they popped up next to their head. Um, it makes it feel like you're stepping back in time uh, in a really charming way, um, in a much more epic way than I think I've felt before in a movie like this. And I don't think that's just the runtime. Right. It, uh, one of the scenes I'm reminded of is uh, there's a scene where there's, a, I guess they kind of take out this rival taxi company. And so they dump all these taxis into the river and then also blow up a bunch. And it's like, there's no CGI there. They got you know, 10, 12 taxis and threw them into the river or blew up the, that, that many taxis. And it, it's that kind of tangible real world, real props, um, thing that wor- that works really well as opposed to, you know, you could have easily done it all, all CGI just to save money or, or time or whatever, but it's, they, they, they took the extra step. Yeah. It reminds me of Tarantino, like t- stopping down an entire Hollywood Boulevard street, to like work it over and shoot a scene for once upon a time in Hollywood, like Scorsese does the work and he puts the time in. Uh, and you're right. There, there was surprisingly little CGI that I noticed. There's some sky boxes that are pre- present in some background shots where they probably shot it on a soundstage. But for the most part, like they went out and shot uh, that whole, I think that whole road trip bit where they're going from Philadelphia to Detroit. I think all of that is practical. Like, like that yeah. looks like they drove out to the street and parked a car and we're like, okay, we're doing this scene, you know? And I had Rod De Niro and, and Joe Pesci all dressed up and then uh, Al Pacino the same. You'd think you'd notice more CGI, especially in a movie where you're digitally de-aging faces, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, what did you think of that? For the most part, it worked pr- pretty well. I think the only time it doesn't work is when you're trying to make them look 20. You know, you can get away with looking late 30s, 40s. I mean, these guys are in their 70s, so it's um, it is difficult. The one giveaway, though, that that I, that is kind of a cruel uh, comment is you can de-age someone's face. You can't de-age someone's body, someone's yep. movements, and that's that's the one giveaway. Is these guys are in their 70s? They still move like they're in the, their 70s, and any time that they are required to do any kind of action, it, it is obvious that it's not a 30-year-old man. Um, so that's kind of the one gripe. But I, I thought it was pretty convincing. It's funny because you'd watched this before me and I'd kind of asked you about it and said, you know, what am I getting into here at uh, three and a half hours? Um, you're you're totally right. And like it's it's pretty noticeable, especially in the earlier parts of the first act when our characters are supposed to be the youngest. Now, we don't get to Jimmy Hoffa till like act two. So he's already pretty old i think i think he's probably supposed to be 40 or 50 by the time we get there which is fine but de niro when he gets back from world war ii and he's driving stakes in a delivery truck at the beginning of the film i'm pretty sure he's supposed to be like 30 and he looks 55 yeah yeah. like but that de-aging is smart because they don't try to go too far like it it still feels pretty relevant and often like over the course of the film i kind of forgot what do these guys actually look like in reality you know i couldn't place where they're at the de-aging is 
not too egregious and they could have gone, gone further with it i think it would have been more distracting it's just it just softens some wrinkles a little bit and it just kind of softens yeah. some lines and then and then when they get older i think they use more practical effects but i think there's also like they're aging up a little bit uh yeah. for some of these guys who kind of make it past uh yeah, where that, they that, are that part's life. easy because they're almost there right yeah yeah that that part's a breeze but, um but, but see I, uh well by contrast in in the godfather uh part two uh, Robert De Niro plays the young um, Vito Corleone, uh, yeah. played, of course, by Marlon Brando. So he is playing the 20-year-old, 30-year-old version of of this of The Godfather mm-hmm. himself. And uh, to me, that's a much more memorable performance to see this at that time, the young and up-and-coming actor play the young version of this. I, I would have rather had someone else play young, young Frank Sheeran than... Um, the de-aging especially like in in the couple of quote-unquote action scenes yeah i I feel the same way at least in the early parts it's just distracting i again the delivery driver is where where i really get stuck on there's obviously some more some more active scenes uh usually when robert de niro is cooking a fool um but (laughs) like specifically the delivery driver stuff really stands out because it's the beginning and you're just starting to get into the movie our, our young delivery driver, he drives a truck and he stands next to it while other people unload it. And, like, when he gets out of that truck, dude, he's hobbling. And you're like, you're in your 30s, dude. You should be hopping out of that thing. Yeah, like, you yeah. should be moving along. Yeah, and he's moving slow. And and that's okay. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple ways it could have gone. They could have either done what they did. They could have gotten, like, a body double and stuck their face on, like, deep faked it. And I don't think that would have been any better. Or he could have just recast. And I... I, I hey, I appreciate Scorsese swinging for the fences, but like honestly, in the younger bits, like you probably could have just recast, right? Like I'm, I'm it always would have been fine. I'm always a fa- that's what that's what Hollywood did for almost a hundred years. Like sure. we'll we'll be fine. And ever since ever since Looper, it's really hard not to defend that because it's like you could you could just work up a younger actor to look a little bit more like them, right? And nobody would know, you know. But instead, you're you're really reaching for it with the CGI, but. It does help you stay plugged into the characters. That's very relevant. Like, when I'm looking at De Niro, I know it's De Niro, de-aging or not. You know, I know, I kind of know what he's getting at. Um, But I do think that's part of the reason they're not throwing time cards for years up in front of you. Because if they keep it, if they keep it vague, it's a little harder to, to like, place. Oh, he's supposed to be 35 right now? He looks terrible, you know? Um, But I thought it was okay. (sighs) Okay, so let's 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 figure out where we're at. What else do we need to talk about? Here? The, uh, I wanted to kind of talk about the editing or some of these stylistic choices in the way the story is told. So mm-hmm. we get a mix of things that we've heard before. So we get uh, we start with a voiceover, very classic, like we did in um, Goodfellas. But then we also have some breaking of the fourth wall. We have. Uh, there, there's one really extended slow motion shot where this shot is like like gruelingly slow, but lots of voiceover is happening over this. So there's lots of stylistic things. And like we said, we were talking about some of the the cuts as well that are going on at the same time. And I think that just adds to his, his style adds to the storytelling. It it just kind of mixes it up and keeps it interesting. Yeah, I I agree. I, there's uh, on top of what I said was Scorsese making jump cuts to like, the same thing, things happening in the same scene, which are distracting to me. He also does it to things that are particularly violent or explosive. Uh, there's a great scene when a woman who's particularly frightened of, of the mob gets in her car and she's nervous about starting the car and you can tell there's something wrong. And, and she goes to turn the key and right as she does it, you get a jump cut with no audio to a car exploding at night from a car bomb. And then you cut right back a second later and her car starts up and she's fine. And it's so stark and like sudden and it's so effective and it's, it's, it's practical. Like you said, they're blowing up cars in this movie. Um, but that happens a few times, uh, you know, a, a, a choice to cut away from an action to show something else in association with it. It really keeps you on your toes. Uh, mm-hmm. it probably, I, I can't say it doesn't happen enough in this movie cause the movie's just long. I, I would say maybe it should happen more, but maybe the movie should be shorter. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and that's, we're talking about when we talk about editing. I I think this movie could stand to, to shake some serious weight and and, uh-huh. and be much tighter. Uh, you thought you could lose about a half hour, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that Scorsese is a master of the three hour epic. You know, uh, his last film, uh, Silence, is it Silence? Um, 
with uh, Adam Dr- that I, Adam Driver was in. Uh, I mean, that's a long one too. But all of these, I mean, he's telling epic stories, and he does need epic time when you think of uh, other things. Um, uh, obviously, Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, the de- the Departed, the Departed, um, <laughs> yeah. the de- ideally Departed. Departed. You know, he he. I always complain when people do long movies and they don't really have enough story to fill them. He is the one person that I think is can do these epics and really has enough story for them. That being said, I think it could it could be shorter, and I th- that's probably why no one wanted to do this movie because you're not going to make any money off a three and a half hour movie in a theater. Okay, that limits the amount of show times. It limits who wants to go and sit that that long. It's just it's not a very profitable thing to do, and that's why probably Netflix ended up with it. Sure. But I, I do think it's worth mentioning. I don't. I don't know if Net, if Scorsese could have gotten away with this outside of a Netflix picture, right? Net, I feel like Netflix was probably the first one to say, "Hey, we're going to buy your movie," and he'll say, "Okay, well, how long does it need to be?" And they'll say, "As long as you want." There's no studio to tell him, "Hey, people are going to get uncomfortable sitting in a seat this long." Well, right? and also, yeah, and also the the budget went way over it. I think it went up to 100, 150 million. Yeah, there's, no, there's nobody to rein him in. Uh, and, and I think that's good, honestly. Um, just like, just like, uh, uh, oh God, Roma. Who, who directed Roma last year? Uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu, uh, right. right? Yeah. Uh, yes. that freedom, I think with, with big directors like this is important. It's something I wish somebody like Spielberg would embrace, right? Instead, he's going to slander it and say, no, 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 we don't, we don't need movies like this. We need movies in theaters. The silver screen is where things should be. This is a passion project. For, for, for Scorsese, just like Silence, right? This seems like something he's wanted to make for a little while, and he finally gets the opportunity because he's set free a little bit. Now, do, do, is it maybe too much? Does do, does he maybe need somebody to rein him in? I think maybe. I, I, think, I think there's a cut of this movie that's an hour shorter that feels way tighter, but your mileage may vary. I, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad time. It just means I had trouble getting through it. Maybe it's worth a rewatch. Yeah, or, I mean, some people have suggested maybe it would have worked better as a series. Yes, uh, I, I had complained about that before I saw it, and still kind of feel that way. I don't know how you'd cut it, but you could easily make a f- like a four or five part miniseries out of this, and you yeah. could dump it all at once. It doesn't have to be a weekly thing, you know, and just say, "Hey, here's the whole thing." And you can put little title cards in between, and the first one could be "I heard you paint houses," and the next four can be whatever, and the last one can be "The Irishman," and that way you get your cool tribute, but also like its own. Like I don't know, like it, it could. There's a way you could adapt this, but I can see why Scorsese's kind of hanging on to what he knows, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, for what it's worth, uh, as much as I would like to say well, this movie should be shorter, I can't say that for sure, because Wolf of Wall Street was two and a half hours, and supposedly Scorsese originally had a four-hour cut of that film, and I swear to God, Andy, I would have watched that movie <laughs> hand over fist. I would have paid to see a four-hour cut of, of Wolf of Wall Street, but uh, it is what it is, and, and I think... I think that passion ultimately does not hurt this movie. I think it helps it. I do think the runtime may keep me from rewatching anytime soon. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see it again. I'd love to catch it in the theater, but it's gonna. I'm gonna have to block out the whole afternoon. Yeah, no, that's fair. Well, let's see. We covered themes, plot, cast, uh, uh, characters, editing, uh, runtime, soundtrack. What are we? What are we missing here? I think we're good. I'm ready for recommendations. I'm I'm honestly amazed we've made it to the end of what it would be a normal episode. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I, I and you know what? Damn it! I think we had a good conversation about it. So I feel I stand by this one. I don't think this was lame at all. Uh, Andy, would you recommend The Irishman? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely one of Scorsese's best films. I mean, it might might as well be his magnum opus. It's uh, you know, after a lifetime of doing these kinds of gangster films, this is uh, kind of the Unforgiven. Uh, of that genre and you know we were reading an article earlier today about how this is marks the end of an era for this kind of film and also this kind of time in in america that used to be a real thing these gangsters used to be real people and real organizations and now they've all kind of faded into the limelight but it's it's an incredible film incredible cast it is long it is epic but i think it's it's worth it if you're you know the cinema the cinephile um you know sit down block out the afternoon and go through it yeah i i'd recommend it as well uh i i don't know if i'd say it's worth watching in installments you should probably try to watch it all in one shot which i know sounds absurd but um if it's in a theater maybe it's worth your time but the Irishman's a lot of fun yeah it, it, it you're right it, it pays tribute to what's come before it feels like a, a a tribute to not only scorsese's career but pesci's and 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 uh 
oh god de niro i'm, I'm losing it uh, the wheels are starting to shake on this thing <laughs> uh uh harvey Keitel, uh, al pacino is great in this movie probably a couple at least a couple of oscar nominations i would think should be thrown at this thing um it's real good it's it's a real good kind of gangster film and it's a fantastic journey through uh you know the life of a gangster but through a different lens through an older lens a vintage one that's a little bit more mature and maybe a little bit more nuanced than what's come before and i think ultimately that's what makes this movie so powerful um the irishman probably worth your time if you can spare it <laughs> mm-hmm. and with that we should probably wrap our show like i said i can't believe we actually made it to the hour mark my god <laughs> yeah uh that's amazing uh next week we're gonna be looking at two adam driver films oh my god it is driver december uh driver fever in driver f- driver fest it's driver fest yeah we're gonna be looking at the report on amazon prime the movie that i said i was gonna watch for this episode but then totally didn't and we're gonna be looking at marriage story uh also adam driver scarlett johansson led film directed by not jim jarmusch uh I can't remember. Who's doing that? I'll look it up. (laughs) Okay. And you'll look it up. If you enjoyed the show, if you liked what we had to say about The Irishman, or maybe if you didn't think it was that cool, let us know. Uh, Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Drop us a comment on YouTube. We're over there, and we'll read anything on the air. Probably (laughs) anything at this point. Like, uh, we'll we'll, we'll do it. It's fine. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. And while you're at it, if you're on those social media sites, dropping hot comments in the chat, uh, throw us a, you know, throw us a like, maybe, or a follow. And if you can swing it, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can hear more episodes like this one every single week. And make your friends subscribe, too. Steal their phones. That's what we do. Works out great. <laughs> Nobody ever sees it coming. Uh, you take somebody's phone to take a picture, you switch over to the podcast app, and boom. Another off-script subscriber. <laughs> it works every time. Hey, Andy, who directs that movie? I'm sorry. Uh, Noah Baumbach. Noah Baumbach. That's right. The guy who did Patterson, right? Which is another Adam Driver mm-hmm. film. We're Driver fans over here, if you didn't know. Ghouls. Uh, So, uh, with that being said, thanks for listening to Offscript. From all of us here at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.